Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello again and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. if today's case is a murder or just a really sad tragedy. I think I'm still on the fence myself about it, and you'll have to decide for yourself. But what's interesting about this story and why I'm covering it is because it served as a pivotal case in the Mr. Big Stings here in Canada, and is now the basis on which all Mr. Big Stings are done um, if they want to have them admissible in court. Most of my source for this story was from the court documents, but there are two articles that I want to make sure to source specifically. Nicholas Kohler of McLean's Magazine wrote a detailed piece in August 2006 that was republished in October 2013. And then Jane Tabor from the Globe and Mail wrote an article in September on September 26, 2014. Both the articles are very detailed and gave great background information. However, they're coming from competing viewpoints, so I'm going to try and give you both sides of the story so that you can decide for yourself what you think. Now, just a quick note about some episodes coming up. I have a few episodes that I write and I record in advance, um, but I also have some life stuff coming up. I'm, I'm getting a surgery done in August. Nothing serious, just a Crohn's disease thing. And then I'm getting married, actually, on October 1st. Uh, I've been spitting out episodes 
consistently for a year now and I should probably consider taking a break. So what I think I'm going to do is let my bank of episodes play out uh, while I'm doing my life stuff and then come back to it. And then that way I get a bit of a break from the researching and the writing, but you don't have to wait too long between new episodes. At least that's the plan going into it. This is The Deaths of Krista and Karen Hart. First, we need to go back a bit and talk about some of the players in this story. It was really hard to get a tight story out of any of the people close to the events that actually took place. The stories don't always make sense logically, and it just seems like everyone in the story is kind of telling their own version where they try to look the best in it. The town of Gander, Newfoundland, which is where this story takes place, is almost a character in itself. And actually, it is a character in itself. Um, There's a play currently going. I just actually saw an ad um, that is playing at the Jubilee here in Calgary. It's a play called Come From... I think it's called Come From Away, um, specifically about the events in Gander from 9-11. Gander is about... 40 kilometers from the shores of Gander Bay and it's a small town of about 12,000 residents and they welcomed 6,700 evacuees on September 11th, 2001 otherwise known as 9-11 under Operation Yellow Ribbon. So the people of Gander actually volunteered their own homes to house, feed and sort of keep the people entertained until the airports opened again on that day. Um, I think it was about maybe almost a whole week at that time that they, um, before the airports had opened up and people could go back to where they were uh, originally trying to get to. The only reason Gander even has an airport is because in 1935, being so close to what's called the Great Circle Route between New York and London made it a really perfect base for military aircraft. And the town today is actually rather dependent on the airport as a major part of its economy because it serves as a refueling stop for many transatlantic flights. Next, we have Pearl Hart. Now, I don't know much about Pearl, But she had her firstborn son named Nelson Lloyd, and she later had two more sons. And at some point, very likely in the children's lives, she was a single mom until she met a new partner that she didn't marry but was living with. Um, But I don't know that man's name. When Nelson was only nine months old, he was sick and he got a very high fever. His breathing was labored and in Pearl's words, quote, he was coal black in his crib. So she rushed him to the hospital and was told he probably wasn't going to make it but he did um, but the fever that he had caused epilepsy which he was left with into his adult life pearl was interviewed for the mclean's magazine article and said of his epilepsy quote it prevented him from being normal he was always deprived of a lot of things and he was always bitter worse was the reaction of his classmates they used to tease him and tell him how ugly he was because he was People didn't get all that close to Nelson, end quote. I find that to be a very interesting quote. Um, I really have no idea how the rest of the world sees my children who are now adults in the world. Um, So it's interesting that she would agree with the public on his appearance during seizures as being ugly. Uh, My son had epilepsy as a toddler and thankfully outgrew it. Uh, And then I have a friend with daughters with seizure disorders. I just have a lot of experience with seizure disorders. And I can see how maybe other children would see them as scary and maybe want to run away from them. But 
as adults, I don't know, to me as a mom, I mean, the compassion that I had for what uh, my son and my uh, my friend's children were going through overrode any ideas of what he actually looked like, if that makes sense. I just thought it was a very odd quote. Anyways, due to the seizures, Nelson had to repeat grade five a total of three times. And finally, he was just pulled out of school. They just didn't feel like school was the right place for him. And I guess either there were no alternatives or no one bothered to look into any kind of programs for him because after that, he just lived at home really doing nothing. Apparently, due to the seizures, he has some difficulty reading, but he was able to get his driver's license. Now, the driver's license becomes a bit important later. He he did lose his license a few times over the years due to the seizures. Um, he was on medication by the time he was 20 that allowed him to start driving again. And Pearl believes that in Nelson's mind, his license was the only thing that he had going for him and would do whatever he had to to keep it. Uh, That included refusing to go to the hospital for his more serious seizures because he just didn't want to have that license taken away again. When Nelson was in his mid-20s, that's when Pearl met her common-law partner. But Nelson and him butted heads and... When, during one such fight, Nelson actually threatened to kill him, he was kicked out of the family home and he had to make a go of it on his own. And that's when Jennifer Hicks comes into the picture. Jennifer was the youngest of six siblings in Musgrave Harbor, a very small town of only about a thousand residents. Uh, It's about an hour outside of Gander. Her father died when she was really young and he had worked on fishing boats. Then her mom, who had been a home care worker, died. So with only a grade 10 education, her and her sister decided to move to Gander, where they would both get their GEDs and then take a business administration course. So that's when she moved into a low-income apartment complex and met the 300-pound Nelson Hart, who also lived in the complex. Jennifer told the Globe and Mail in September 2014 that she liked the way he acted and seemed caring. So soon they were dating, and only a few months later, she moved in with him. She was pretty familiar with seizures. One of her sisters had also suffered with them. So she quit her job as a waitress at the Albatross Motel and became his full-time caregiver. In 1998, she discovered to her delight that she was pregnant with twins. Although Jennifer was excited, Nelson was a bit nervous. His seizures often caused his hands to clench and was worried that he might smother or drop the babies. In March 1998, Karen was born weighing a healthy 5 pounds 8 ounces, and one minute later came Krista at a nice even 7 pounds. And when it comes to Jennifer, there are disputing reports. From her own accounts, things went down one way, but then other reports make her appear very immature. In the Globe and Mail from 2014 article, she appears to speak mostly um, articulately, but then the McLean's article from 2013 says when she w- was asked what attracted her to Nelson, and this was 11 years later when she's 32 and not 21, um, Nicholas Kohler in that article said all she did was giggle. But none of the articles I read accuse her of being a bad mom. So Nelson Hart is the person at the heart of this story. Obviously, he has his issues. He talked with McLean's in 2013 and was pretty open about the extent of his issues. We know that he had severe epilepsy and was living on social assistance and was unable to keep a job. He had suffered a broken neck in a car accident at one point, 
I think just before the girls were born. Um, he also admits, and Jennifer would concur, that he had a severe gambling habit, um, spending any money that they did have on the VLT machines. So I'm just going to group up here and summarize where we're at at the time of the events um, that are going to follow. We have two parents, both raised in poverty with limited educations, what I would characterize as having stunted or delayed emotional maturity, and on the part of Nelson, cognitive function issues, severe seizures, and a gambling problem. More importantly, there is Krista and Karen Hart, who on the day of their deaths were three years old. They were born by cesarean section after a healthy pregnancy with no other issues. The girls grew up to be bubbly, giggly, busy little toddlers that insisted on dressing the same and doing everything together. Krista, being born one minute later than Karen, was born the bigger twin, both in size and personality. So Krista ran the show, according to Jennifer, but took a role of being very caring towards Karen. Um, If they were put to bed in separate beds in the morning, they would be curled up together in a single bed. Jennifer and Nelson married a year after they were born in a very casual ceremony um, with wedding attire of jeans and t-shirts. Unfortunately, Krista and Karen didn't live long enough to show the world their potential. So here's an example of some of the trouble I had with getting to what is likely the truth. According to Nelson and his mom, Pearl, Nelson was reluctant to spend time alone with the girls because of his seizures. As they got older, the girls actually became somewhat fearful of them, which I can totally understand. I think they are very scary to watch, and I mean, these are little peanuts. And according to Nelson, they would hide from him when he had a seizure, but all he ever wanted in his life was to have a family. But according to Jennifer, in 2014, she reports that Nelson showed very little interest in the girls and even resented the time and attention that Jennifer paid to them. Nelson reports that he received a $25,000 settlement from his car accident that injured his neck and used it to purchase furniture and clothes for the girls. But the items were seized when social services learned of the money and forced him to sell them. Jennifer reports that he sold the items for gambling. At the time of the events that followed, social services had been involved with the family and had told Jennifer that they would consider removing the girls from her care. Now, according to... According to her, she was going to have to make a choice. It was either going to be the girls or Nelson. But I'm not sure what that was really all about because Jennifer remained with Nelson for six years after the girls' death. And at the time of their deaths, other than being on social assistance, um, the seizures and his gambling issues, she didn't report of any other issues within the marriage or anything like that. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Anyways, on the morning of August 4th, 2002, Gander was in the midst of their annual Festival of Flight celebrations, something the locals call Gander Days. And the family was going to attend the demolition demolition derby that was being held that day. By both reports, Jennifer had gotten the girls dressed and fed so they were ready to go. And Nelson says that Jennifer still had to shower and do her hair. And that because her hair went all the way down to the small of her back, it took her about an hour or so. So he piled the girls into his Dodge Shadow to kill some time at the swing sets that were located by a place called Little Harbor, which is on Gander Lake about 10 kilometers outside of the town limits. Jennifer says that he offered to take the girls to the swings, quote, out of the blue. He didn't seem contrary or nothing like that. I said, all right, you can take them, end quote. There were no witnesses to what happened next. So when Nelson arrived at the park area, he parked the car and first got Krista out of the back seat and put her behind him on the ground and turned to get Karen and put her down next to Krista. According to Nelson, seconds after Karen's feet touched the ground, he had a massive seizure and he can recall one of the girls running but couldn't register if she was running towards him or away from him. Nelson told Nicholas Kohler of McLean's that he looked and saw Krista, quote, into the water. He was confused and couldn't swim. He knows he got behind the wheel of his car, but he didn't remember driving home. Quote, by this time I was starting around to my real senses. I said, oh my God, Karen's there too. So the story is muddy here, but he drove around. So he drove without the girls back to the house, which was 10 kilometers away. And according to Jennifer, he arrived about 20 minutes after he left. So whatever happened, happened pretty much as soon as they arrived at the park. She says that Nelson told her that Krista was in the water. She asked where Karen was, and when she got in the car, Karen wasn't there. No one has reported on the actual conversation between Jennifer and Nelson, but I imagined it was a lot of panic discussion without making much sense. He sped back to the harbor with Jennifer, who also couldn't swim. And when they got there, they could see that Krista was in the water and had drifted by that time into the middle of the harbor. She was laying face down. Nelson went to a gas station that was nearby and called 911. When paramedics arrived, they were able to retrieve Krista's body from the water where she was still barely clinging to life. And the RCMP found Karen about 10 meters from the dock, deceased. 
Krista died in hospital the next day while Jennifer held her. The police were called as the deaths were considered suspicious, and as Nelson was being driven to the station for questioning, he actually had another seizure. In his interview, Nelson told police that Krista had fallen off the wharf and that he panicked and left the scene. Karen, at that time, was standing behind the dock. The problem, though, for the police was that Nelson had a functioning cell phone in his car, yet he drove the 10 or 11 kilometers to his apartment in Gander, passing businesses and a hospital even, on the way to seek help from his wife, who he knew would also couldn't swim. And then he left the scene again to finally get help, so by the time the rescuers arrived, it was too late to save either one of the girls. Now, I can see why the police were initially suspicious. It's a crazy story. But some parts actually make sense, and some don't. So we have this big, burly guy with no real work history, a history of some mental health issues and a gambling problem, and on the one day he drives alone with them, they both wind up drowning. And he never calls anyone for help except Jennifer, who he knows can't swim. But... Some parts I can see not being hogwash. He did suffer seizures. The girls did tend to be frightened of those seizures and would likely have run away from him. But would both girls immediately run into the water when they really just wanted to play on the swings that day? And the fact that both girls died by drowning during the same incident looks very odd. What isn't helping him look unsuspecting is the fact that despite suffering a seizure in the back of the police cruiser, he doesn't tell them that part of the story until two months later on September 30th. According to his mom, Pearl, it was because he didn't want to lose his driver's license. And he only told them that when he saw Krista go into the water, he immediately drove home to get Jennifer. That's very odd, But remember, he also has a lot of cognitive function issues, but not so much that he couldn't operate a moving vehicle or the video lottery machines that he was so fond of. Prior to the winter of 2005, Nelson, in all accounts, is painted as intellectually challenged. But what else I found odd was that when the ambulance arrived and Krista was fished out of the water, still clinging to life, both Jennifer and Nelson got into their car and followed, having no idea at that point where Karen was and thinking she was hiding in the woods, leaving an RCMP officer to search for her in the woods and finding her then in the water. I find that a bit odd too. Two kids, two parents. I would think under those circumstances, you would send Jennifer to be with Krista and leave Nelson to help look for Karen. Because there were no witnesses, police weren't able to lay any charges anyways, but they were convinced that Nelson had deliberately murdered his two little twin girls. Jennifer might have had her suspicions at that time as well, because they separated shortly after the girls' deaths, but Jennifer had missed being with Nelson and they'd gotten back together with him sometime prior to 2005 and moved to Grand Falls, Newfoundland. Neither one of them had a job at the time, and they slept together in this cramped apartment on a camping mat, often going without food. Jennifer remained staunchly supportive of Nelson, believing there was nothing nefarious about the girls' deaths. It was just a tragic accident, 
and she stayed supportive until 2011. So the winter of 2005 is important because that's when Nelson met a man named Steph Sov, a mysterious and elegant man with a French accent and olive complexion, otherwise known as Mr. Big. This Mr. Big sting had actually started in 2004 with the research that they do beforehand, and they discovered that he was not working, he was socially isolated, almost never leaving his home without Jennifer, and was a gambler. So the police determined that the way to Nelson Hart's heart was with money and friendship. So during this investigation, there were a total of 63 fictitious scenarios that Hart was involved in. So I'm not going to go through all of them. Basically, Steph pulled up at his apartment complex, handed him a photograph of a woman he said was his sister, that he was looking for her. She was an addict who spent all her times in bars around the town. And Steph said that he would give him $50 to help him look for her. He never did find his sister for Steph, but the very next day was offered more money to collect a package and make a delivery. According to Nelson, he suspected shadiness and asked his mom what he should do, and she had told him, quote, if he's foolish enough to pay you, then let him. So let's just say over the next few months, financially things started to turn around for Nelson and for Jennifer, who knew of Steph but had never dealt with him directly. Interestingly, the very first thing that he purchased, now this is according to Jennifer, was a $4,000 headstone engraved with two little angels to mark the girls' graves. Nelson knew that he was into some shady and illegal business. They had him traveling all over the country delivering suitcases of cash, passports, casino chips. He said he was even told by one of the members of the organization that they sex trafficked. So he knew what he was involved with wasn't legitimate. But when he got a call in Montreal that he had to go see the boss because some rival gang said someone witnessed him drowning his girls... He was more afraid of being done away with by the boss than anything that they might have witnessed. So he met with him in Vancouver at a hotel room where his boss told him that he was afraid of the claims of the rival gang and demanded to know what he had done with his daughters. Nelson claims that he at first said, never, sir, never, I never hurt my daughters. I'm epileptic, sir. But when the boss told him, don't go lying to the boss, he was terrified that he was going to be done away with, and he told him, quote, I drowned my daughters, I pushed them over the wharf. And he said that he'd pushed them with his knee. He told Steph that he had done it because he was worried his brother would get custody of the girls, and he kind of thought that was the end of it. Now, he did take Steph down to um, the location to show him, like sort of reenact what he had done, and at that time... Rather than showing how he pushed with his knee, he used his shoulder. When he got back home to Grand Falls, he got another call from Steph telling him that he would take care of the guy that he had said witnessed the drowning, to which Nelson says that he told him he didn't want part, a part of any murder. But he still wanted to have an alibi for this taking care of thing that they were going to be doing on his behalf. So he was told to get his butt to Walmart with Jennifer, where he told Jennifer, look up at the camera and smile. And according to McLean's, they stood that way for 20 long, awkward minutes. In my opinion, sealing their fates as not exactly criminal masterminds. Not surprisingly, Hart was arrested the next day and charged with two counts of first degree murder. 
Throughout the preliminary trial and the main trial where the confession tapes were played, both Pearl and Jennifer remained with Nelson, even telling Steph, which is of course not his real name, outside the courtroom, you got some nerve on you. They both believed in his innocence even after hearing his confession and they accepted all of his collect calls from the remand. In March 2007, a jury convicted him on both counts based almost exclusively on the Mr. Big confession tapes. Nelson and his legal team appealed his conviction, and in July 2012, the Court of Appeal agreed to a new trial on the basis that the Mr. Big operation was not admissible, stating that Nelson, quote, was in the control of the state in a manner that was equivalent in degree to detention. It was not reasonable to expect that he would have any reason or take any opportunity to leave the organization. That meant he had to subscribe to the culture of the organization and to ensure that he continued to receive the approbation of Mr. Big. Although he obviously wanted to maintain that he had an innocent explanation for the deaths of his daughters, he eventually succumbed when it was clear that Mr. Big would accept no other answer than one which accepted his proposition that he was responsible for their murder. For Mr. Hart, in the circumstances in which he found himself, there was very little downside to telling Mr. Big what he wanted to hear, since he believed the operatives were not police, and he had been assured that any information he gave would be from kept from the authorities. On the other hand, in his mind, Mr. Hart had a great deal to lose if he did not accede to the required admission. The appeal court determined that Hart's rights were violated under the Section 7 Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The prosecutor appealed that decision to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they released their pivotal decision, the one at the whole point of this case, on July 31, 2014, which basically said that henceforth, all Mr. Big Stings would be what they call presumptively inadmissible and subject to scrutiny. Particular guidelines are now outlined that judges must consider before allowing confessions to be admissible. Trial judges must also consider the circumstances in which the confession is made, including the extent of any kind of inducements offered and the presence of threats, as well as the sophistication and mental health of the accused. They must also examine the confession for what they call markers of reliability, including the level of detail and whether the accused has provided details of the crime that have not been made public. So that's that hold back evidence that we often hear about. The willingness of the accused to join a criminal organization and participate in simulated crimes can have a prejudicial effect on the jury. So it's up to the Crown to show the balance of probabilities that the value of the confession outweighs any prejudicial effect on like sort of their bad character. Basically, greed is not a factor that makes one vulnerable to false confessions, but they can create an environment where it's basically better to confess to something than to remain truthful, which is kind of what happened in this case. Judges must also be vigilant for things like police abuse, coercion, uh, that kind of thing. Of, of course, threats of any violence are unacceptable. So, And so too are any Mr. Big operations that basically prey on a suspect's vulnerabilities, such as their mental health, um, or if they're extremely young, or um, cognitive issues. 
Justice Michael Moldaver said to the National Post of the court's decision, wrongful convictions are a blight on our justice system. We must take reasonable steps to prevent them before they occur. So, Nelson Hart was released from prison and a free man. Jennifer Hicks recounts, quote, going around in circles and shaking and that she just lost it when Nelson was arrested for her daughter's murders. But she remained loyal to him for an additional six years until she met a taxi driver named Scott Parsons and they started a relationship. Now, she says of Scott, um, there was something about Scott, the way he treated me, the way Nelson treated me was totally different. I thought every man was like him, but they're not. Unfortunately, Scott was killed in a car accident on his way one night to her place. So Jennifer divorced Nelson in 2012 and is now married to another man. She now claims that Nelson was abusive towards her and although not physically abusive to the girls, had been mean to them. Um, She penned a book about her side of the story in 2013. However, at the time of the Globe and Mail article in 2014, she still doesn't work and lives on social assistance and won't f- says that she won't feel comfortable working anywhere until Nelson's back behind bars. Quote, it might take me years. They might find something else. I don't know. Why should he be walking the streets happy-go-lucky getting away with the girl's death while I'm suffering every day of my life without my precious angels? If there's anything in my power that I can do, I am doing it. There is no justice for me or my girls. It's like me and the girls are just washed under the wa- rug. End quote. Pearl told the Globe and Mail that Nelson was living in St. John's and under care because his nerves are bad. She refused to divulge any further information um, about his whereabouts, fearing that the police are still very angry with him because of the fact that they couldn't get him and that she has never given up on him and believes 100% in his innocence. So whatever you think of Nelson, innocent or murderer, public opinion mostly puts him under the murderer category. And he's currently listed right under Joseph Albert Guy, who masterminded the bombing of a Canadian Pacific airplane in 1949, killing his wife and 22 other innocent passengers. And above, Victor Ernest Hoffman of the Shell Lake murders in Murderpedia. Now here's my thoughts. I don't know if he killed his daughters on purpose, but there is more than enough reasonable doubt for the acquittal in my opinion. There were no witnesses, so his reporting of the events hasn't been disproven. He did suffer seizures, and I've seen enough seizures to know you're not aware of your surroundings, and it was proven that Karen and Krista were afraid of Nelson's seizures um, and that that running away from him wouldn't be absurd. I think that the Mr. Big Sting did take advantage of his vulnerabilities, and it seems more than likely that creating a confession in order to stay in the organization and not upset the boss does seem plausible under the circumstances. Basically, in his mind, there's less downside to creating a confession than there was to keeping keeping to his story of the seizure. There was no reasonable threat that social services was going to take the children away from him nor give them to his brother so really no motive and nelson is not a sophisticated intellect so planning and evading just really isn't in his wheelhouse however if you do not feel the same way after i had done all my research i noticed that canadian true crime has a two-parter on this case at first i thought darn you christy 
stealing my thunder, but I went and listened and she seems to be of the opinion that he's a murderer um, because I've done the research, pretty much the same research she did. So I know where most of her sources were from. And a lot of them are from Jennifer's book that she wrote. Now you may say to yourself, Kim, why wouldn't you use sources like that from the people involved themselves? Well, that's because from my reading and research, it was clear to me that the story kind of keeps changing. Now, I'm not saying Jennifer is in any way being untruthful. Her recollection of specifics seems to have changed from her days of supporting Nelson to now wanting him behind bars. And it's just little changes, small little added details. But I felt it was more accurate to take the events from the from closer to the time when they actually happened. Now, having said that, there is a chance that some of my facts might be lacking the proper context or were reported incorrectly at the time. But I just don't like facts that are flavored with opinions or built to create a a particular picture of a person, if that makes sense. So just an example, you know, in Run Report, Jennifer was quoted as saying that social services told her she had to choose her girls or Nelson over the, his abusive behavior, and that happened just before the girl's death. But in Christy Lee's coverage, Jennifer now says that she was actually the one that contacted social services because they were homeless at one point, and the girl's staying with Nelson's brother was just kind of one of the options they were looking at at the time, but they got a place of their own and the issue was completely dropped. It was just little things like that. Um, Again, however, having said all that, just to give you a little bit more information to form your own opinion, in January 2013, while incarcerated, um, Nelson was charged for allegedly threatening and assaulting uh, correctional officers with a paper plate. He was charged based on a single paragraph unsigned report that was written by a correctional officer named Constable Cody Dunphy, who Nelson's lawyer said was hellbent on getting him on a charge um, due to this whole murder case. Cody said in court of the incident rather sarcastically, we wouldn't want to be beaten up with a paper plate. That assault charge was dismissed, but he was found guilty of making threats. To prison staff. Then, on June 2013, Nelson was charged with four counts of uttering threats to correctional officers, a single charge of assaulting a correctional officer, and one count of mischief for damaging prison property. So that matter went to trial in February 2015. Um, Nelson wanted the matter before the court so that he could show people basically how he was being treated in prison. He claimed that he became agitated because of the treatment he was getting from correctional officers and acted out doing acted out due to being treated quote like a dog Um, video of that incident showed nelson being restrained by three correctional officers after using a kettle that he had picked up to smash a tv that was located on the unit and after being restrained um it shows a total of 10 correctional officers coming into Nelson's cell and physically forcing him to the floor where he's restrained uh, and then pulling him out of the cell. He was subsequently convicted of the threats and the mischief charge and then sentenced to 60-day conditional sentence to be served in the community. In the end, it is a complete and total tragedy. I think we will all agree that Karen and Kristen never got to grow up and reach their potential. And I 
I would agree for sure that Nelson is not exactly a likable character. Um, and maybe it was a murder, in, in which case I think that he served a pretty short sentence for that. Or maybe it was just a sad accident and made into a tragedy because Nelson wasn't equipped with the skills required to act appropriately under the stress. I'm going to let you guys decide on that. And that was the deaths of Krista and Karen Hart. I like Mr. Big Stings, and I think they're very useful in investigations, but I do think that they need to consider the tactics that they use when they get the confessions. Fortunately, here in Calgary, at least, as De- Detective Dave Sweet said in my conversation with him, that a lot of the issues raised in this case have already been considered and addressed, um, at least here in Calgary, before they start a Mr. Big um, operation. And as to Nelson Lloyd Hart, I'll let you decide what you think of him. Join me again next week for another episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.